0: I'm Lynn Kawano. Welcome to Episode 2 of The Other Side of Paradise.
1: We make people sick, mentally and physically. It doesn't seem like that, though. See, to me, when I'm using I'm, I'm the most selfish person you could ever meet.
0: Ken Lawson is back with me in his previous podcast, A Painful Beginning. The University of Hawaii Law School instructor and co-director of the Hawaii Innocence Project, us the heartbreaking details of his childhood, his birth in a mental institution to an orphanage, and the struggle to find his biological mother. He also detailed one of the most painful moments of his life, finding his brother's body after he committed suicide. In this episode, Lawson talks about his rise and fall in the legal world, how drug addiction wiped away his status as an attorney and cost him so much more than a paycheck.
1: I remember thinking though, uh, you know, if I win this case, then I'll be happy, right? This 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 case that had me set, you know, and so I worked real hard for six months. You know, we went to trial. We went to a jury trial. He was found not guilty on all, all five charges, and it's like you know, we were all on ESPN. We were on every news. I mean, he, my students don't understand at the law school; they really don't know Dion. You know what I mean? They know. He's too old like,
0: for them now. He's in the Pizza Hut commercial. Yeah, but I'm like, yeah, but I'm like, I'm like Dion.
1: Dion's like LeBron James yeah. is, and he was famous back then.
0: Lawson is talking about Deion Sanders. Prime time. Lawson helped the superstar athlete beat charges, including resisting arrest, in 1995. It was time for a celebration, right?
1: By the time I got back to my office, my staff had balloons, they had a cake, they wanted to celebrate. And I remember coming in, I was yelling at them, like, put that shit away. You know, we got to get ready for the case to set for tomorrow. And I didn't know why I was so angry. Because, like I said, to me, it doesn't look like my problems should be solved on the inside. It looks like everybody else is my problem. See, in my mind, in order for me to be happy, everybody has to act a certain way. My kids can't be getting in trouble. My wife, you know, has to be okay. Uh, if I come in, I don't want the coworkers getting on my nerves. Right. If if everybody could just do what I want them to do today, I can be happy. A few years later, I hurt hurt my shoulder lifting weights. I tore my rotator cuff, uh, and the doctor prescribed me this stuff called Percodan. And I remember taking the Percodan and Percocet to kill the shoulder of my pain because I couldn't sleep at night. And I remember thinking, man, you know, it, it it I wasn't high. It just made me feel okay. It was like, man, it was, I was like chill, right? It was just like there was no more angst. And so it just made me feel good. Um... And then I started thinking, you know, in the morning, well, if I take two in the morning, maybe when I go to court this morning, I won't be so uptight. So now I'm taking two in the morning. Your tolerance continues to grow and grow and grow. And so to get the same amount, the same effect from two pills, maybe uh, six months later, you need four. And it keeps going up and up and up. And it, it just became horrible. So I remember two years, I'm doing 30 pills a day. I'm going from two Percocets and Percodan to 30. And I remember it because I was in, um, I, I took a trip to San Francisco and I needed to know how many pills I needed for the five day trip to make it all the way back. Right, So I had to count them out. That's how I remember two years. So, but I remember also watching um, CBS Sports Special and they were doing it on Brett Favre, him and his wife and they were talking about his addiction to Vicodin. I remember his wife, she said, you know, Brett got so bad. He was taking over 100 Vicodin a day. He would throw some up. And then he'd wash them off and swallow them. And I remember sitting there while I'm taking my Percocets, right, thinking, man, Brett, need, <laughs> Brett needs some help. Now I'm sitting there taking my pills, saying, hey, Brett, Brett, could really, <laughs> Brett needs some treatment because he's a pretty good quarterback. A few years later, I'm doing the same thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and it was just horrible. So then I started snorting cocaine. And it's always about offsetting. Like, okay, I need something to balance me out. And so it, it man it just became crazy. So I'm doing cocaine, I'm drinking, I'm taking Percocet, they have no all patches. I'm wearing those. All I mean, I was just. By the time I got done, my habit was a thousand dollars a day. Now here, now let me say this: I did a lot of civil rights cases against the Cincinnati police. There were riots in Cincinnati in 2001. All those cases were my cases. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is, is tell the audience this. Up until that point, I had some hard battles and hard fights, but I I was always ethical. I never got in trouble. I mean, one thing that the prosecutor and and the police could tell you down there is we didn't like him, but if he told us his yes was yes, his no was no, he meant it. When I started using, when I became an addict, all that was gone. And out of all the stuff that I lost, houses, cars, freedom, my ability to get somebody my word and say that my yes meant yes and my no meant no, is all I ever wanted back. Right? Just just my honor as a man. And th- that made me, you know, feel worse than anything else. See there came a time in my household where there was no more there was no more crying. There was no more daddy please stop using or daddy there was no more for my wife. Are you gonna stop? Right? It was when I came home into my house, my kids and my family would give me a, a look with shark eyes. Right? It's just like you did to us. When you live with an alcoholic or a drug addict like me there's a lot of damage that we do, to not just to ourselves, but mainly to the people around us, right? I mean, we make people sick mentally and physically. It doesn't seem like that, though. See, to me, when I'm using I'm, I'm the most selfish person you could ever meet. See, my thought is I ain't bothering you. I'm in the basement snorting this cocaine. It ain't bothering you. I'm, You know, I'm taking my pills, and I, right? I'm not bothering you whatever. Just leave me alone. And see, I become extremely, extremely manipulative to get what I want. See what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna tell you a story. When if you think if you say, Kenny, I think you you, you may need to, to to cut down on your drinking. I'm gonna tell you a story. I'm gonna give you such a sad story that, that it's gonna make you feel sorry for me. Okay, I understand why you're drinking tonight. All right, but you know, okay, I'm not gonna Lynn, I'm not gonna do it anymore. Come Monday, I'm gonna quit. But you don't understand the week I have. You know, my grandmothers must have died twenty times, right? Like every time I turn around, I'm saying you're <laughs> right? like so, I'm lying to judges. I'm lying to clients. I'm doing whatever I can to use. There's absolutely nothing like Jonesing from opiates. You keep using them to get to that same level of feeling that you had before, right? And you're not going to get there. So, you continue to take them till you, till you OD.
0: But people have said that about other drugs too, right? You'll never get that high like that first high, but people keep trying, Yeah. and yeah. that's when they push themselves.
1: I, you know, I have, I've never tried meth, and thank God for it, because I know I'd have been a meth addict too. But I think, you know, some of those, I can just speak for the opiates and, and like heroin, right? The craving becomes so strong that part of the reason why it took me so long to get sober is I was afraid to get, so I was just, I was afraid to detox. I didn't have a sober hour in years. I always had to have something in me, not to be high, right, but just not to Jones. So you always need to have something in you. I remember my uncle had um, diabetes, and they cut off his leg, and I would pretend to go over to his house like I was really trying to check on him, and I'm going into his medicine cabinet, stealing his painkillers, right? So like I said, I'm not going to come on your podcast and, and tell you I'm I'm going to keep it extremely raw <laughs> because I had to continuously be honest with myself. That's a That's the death that it it had taken me.
0: Is it painful? Is that jonesing painful? Is that need for it painful?
1: It's almost like if you was on a desert and you didn't have any water for weeks and you saw your loved ones and right behind them is a big glass of cold water, you'd run right over them just to get to that water. And and again, it's hard for me to describe to non-addicts and non-alcoholic. Because my wife, right, she's not an alcoholic. She can have like a glass of wine and sip on it all during dinner and not even finishing. I'm over there looking at her like, what is wrong with you? There's absolutely no way. If I came to your house, and you said, Kenny, I got a beer. This so is my last one. Do you want it? My answer would be no, cause it ain't enough. And if I start drinking it, I ain't gonna stop. Yeah, right? it's hard for me to describe to others what it's like.
0: What about when your wife drinks now? Does it... Uh,
1: no, it doesn't bother
0: me. It doesn't bother me. What Anybody else drinking around you doesn't bother Not me. Not at all. What about people popping pills if you see Not somebody take a pill? Not at all. Not but, but You that's, are past that point now.
1: That's because I still do Alcoholics Anonymous.
0: Lawson now does his meetings online. He still has to focus on his recovery every day, but it took him hitting so-called rock bottom to check himself into rehab.
1: I remember my last six months using, I'm praying to God, because I knew, I mean, because I couldn't quit. I remember praying to God, thinking, I know you didn't bring me this far in my life to let me die drug addict. And these were honest prayers. Please don't wake me up in the morning. Please let me die in my sleep. My wife, my kids, this whole world would be better off if I'm not here. You know, and I hope that nobody ever gets to the point in their life where I was, because I was at the point where I didn't want to live and I didn't want to die. You know, I knew, you know, what happened to George and the pain that it caused us. And I didn't have the guts to kill myself, but I didn't want to live, you know. And I'm walking in the pharmacies those last six months hoping the DEA would arrest me because I couldn't quit. I don't know, that sounds crazy. I drove up to Columbus in February, 2007, February 1st. It was freezing. So I'm sitting in there in my Mercedes. I had a CL600. So I'm sitting out there, and I'm taking my last bit of pills, drinking my last bit of alcohol. But I don't know exactly where Talbot Hall is. I'm in a parking lot. So this you guy showed up high. yeah, hell yeah. So I couldn't stay sober. So this guy's walking by and I roll down my window and I say, Hey man, do you know where Talbot Hall is? And he he said, Man, it's over in that building, it's third floor. So that's that's when I went in and interviewed with the lady, et cetera. So she says, Okay, now I'm gonna take you on the floor for your detox. And so I meet the guy seen in the parking lot, right? He ends up being my counselor. He said the same thing you just said. He said, what well, he said, what you doing out there? Getting your last high on before you came in here? I was like, Yeah. They put all these blood pressure patches on my back. Because what happened when you take the opiates, your blood pressure gets lowered, right? And so they put out they put a ton of blood pressure patches on my back to mimic so I wouldn't crap. But it, it was it was horrible. But what he said was, he said, Look here, man. He said, Alcohol and drugs wasn't your problem. He said, That was your solution. Your problem lies in, in you know, in, in between your head. Your problem lies in your what, the way you think and the way you see the world. The problem lies in the fact that you struggle from a spiritual malady. And he said, now, if you want to stay sober for the rest of your life, you're going to do AA or a 12-step program for the rest of your life. I remember thinking to him, like, man, you don't know who you're talking to. See, they, they would say things to me in their land. They would say, Hey, look, do you realize that your best thinking got you into this treatment center? And I remember sitting there thinking, man, do you know how many degrees I got? What do you mean my best thinking got me in here? <laughs> so I, I didn't have any insurance So I could only stay for five days They wanted me to stay for six months Inpatient treatment Because I was messed up When I woke up the next morning February 2nd is my sobriety date That's the first day that I was sober Right, I remember waking up that morning And it felt like a mat truck was on my chest Because then I realized all the damage I had caused Right, See when you're using like, like me As an addict or an alcoholic First I, I'm using because it, it makes me feel okay Then I'm using to, to you know to, to feel good and then I'm using not to feel anything at all you know what I mean and, and so now that I'm feeling something it was just like oh man all the stuff I had done and I remember going to my first meeting inside treatment and this guy he said does anybody have any questions I said man how do you get rid of all this guilt how do you get rid of all this guilt he said let me t-. he was he said he was seven years sober he said look he said if you do this program there will come a time where you won't regret your past nor will you wish to shut your door on it, right? He said, you'll see that your that past can help others. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, don't you feel guilty about anything that you did? He's like, you just have to work the program. Lawson went
0: home after the five days, still sick. He said he had to find an Alcoholics Anonymous near his home to keep him going. He also got a sponsor who helped him with the hardest step of the program, the spiritual one.
1: It was a Friday night at 8.30, and I went in there, and I started listening. And these people that were sharing their stories like I'm sharing now were putting to words what I always felt. You know, I, I, I didn't know anybody felt that emptiness. I didn't know anybody felt depressed when there was nothing going on in their life. You know what I mean? And they were putting words to what I had been feeling. And I remember going home telling my wife, you know, I said, "Marva, these people understand, you know. Because I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. You know what I mean? There were times when I would be like, I'm not going to you know, curse out my wife again. You know, I'm not going to lose my temper. And then I would do that for like a week. I'd be okay. Then I'd lose it again. I remember I could be sitting in the car all by myself thinking about me losing my temper again and, and just blurting out, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And I didn't know, you know. And so when I walk into that meeting and they said, you know, they had these spiritual principles, these 12 steps talking about a spiritual awakening and all this stuff. I'm like, man, I ain't come here for that. Right? How is that my solution? What I need is a real good lawyer to get my ass out of trouble because I'm in a lot of trouble. I need a loan because I ain't trying to get my house foreclosed on. I was in so much pain. I was in so much pain. And I didn't want to be the man I had become. I was done. You know, I started working the steps. But I did come to a peace with God. That was a hard step for me. And finally, I just let go. I remember being six months sober. And they kept saying to me, Kenny, if you don't drink today and don't do any drugs, and you keep doing the air, your life's going to get better. Right, so I'm doing this for six months. And I come home one day, and, and the deputies are there with their padlocks on my on my door, on my 5,000 square foot. I'm like, hey, man, it's like it's foreclosed on your house. I said, can I go in there and get the rest of the stuff for my kids? They're like, no, you should have thought about that. So I'm standing out in front of that driveway, crying, thinking you guys told me if I believed in God, my life was going to get better. I don't consider myself religious, but I am spiritual, but against my personal view. That we all walk this journey ourselves, you know what I mean and so I call her Saint Marva because I mean Saint Marva's been with me man since since high school, right she
0: is a saint that is for sure Ken <laughs> I can't believe she sat there on that driveway with you after all that you did to her and your kids
1: you know and, and what she told me was she's like, you know she said, I always knew that you were in there somewhere. She said, I always knew you was in there somewhere. She said, I was just hoping that you weren't going to kill yourself. She said, it was just hard as hell to sit there. And she describes it like this. She said, it's like watching uh, you circle a drain and wondering whenever you're going to go down the tube.
0: Ken Lawson now has been sober for 14 years. But at that moment, on the driveway that was no longer his, he knew there was so much he still had to pay for, including his drug crimes.
1: And I remember going to my um, one of my mentors. He was a former judge. He passed away a few years ago. But I said, I said, this is before I went to prison. I said, Because I said, Judge, you know, they want me to do 24 months in prison. And he he looked at me, and he used to always make me. He said, you need to go to prison. I said, what do you mean I need to go to prison? He said, yeah, man. He said, there's no story and lawyer comes back from probation. He said, what's the story in that? He said, but there is a story and lawyer comes back from prison. So he said, yeah, you need
0: to go. <laughs> he was sentenced to 24 months And not at a federal camp He was in a medium security prison We went to
1: a Bob Evans restaurant right outside. We was in, in Morgantown, West Virginia So Bob Evans was very popular in Morgantown So we, I, I was thinking about this the other day When, when I celebrated 14 years um, We stopped at Bob, my sponsor And another friend of mine from Alcoholics Anonymous Named Danny, they drove me up there and and we went to Bob Evans, and it was like 20 minutes from the prison. Then they drove me up to the prison. What did you eat? I don't know. I don't remember.
0: It wasn't something that you wanted, absolutely?
1: No, I wasn't. My, I can tell you this much. I probably didn't have an appetite. You know, not going to prison. I went to, you know, <laughs> so.
0: It was nerves. It was, what was it?
1: Yeah, it was nerves, not knowing what to expect. You know what I mean? Uh, I remember, so when you first go in, and they claim that that iron shut mm-hmm. on you, you know what I mean? It's like, oh my God, right? So, so that really
0: happens. happens. They clang that gate behind you.
1: They claim the gate, then they take you into processing and put you in a in a cell, right? So you're in that cell and they shut that door and you realize, see, as a as an attorney, I could always knock and say, Okay, deputy, I'm ready to go out. Sheriff, come get me, whatever, right? As an inmate, hey, that's why I'm looking at that. I can't knock and do shit. It's like you <laughs> you in here, right? <laughs> 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 right? And so Going through that process, then before you get your um, your permanent, like you know, uh, clothes to wear,
0: like a jumpsuit, right? You get like a jumpsuit, like jump
1: right? And, and so everybody else knows you're new on the yard. You know what I mean? And, and so you just you stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, I wasn't afraid physically or anything like that for me, but it was just like you know, um, getting acclimated to it. You know what I mean?
0: So federal prison is mean, not like state prison, right? I mean, the danger isn't. Well, it
1: wasn't bad, you know what I mean? Like I said, most guys in there, if you do what you're supposed to do, because if you if you violate, you go back up to even a worse prison. And so a lot of guys try not to violate. There were a bunch of fights and stuff in there. There were? Yeah, yeah, there were a bunch of fights.
0: Is it a racial thing that makes the fights or just?
1: No, it, it, I think sometimes, but no, it was, it, some of it's just, just people just angry. Right? They're angry. They may not be getting their letters that they're expecting. You know, it could be anything. They don't have enough money on their books. They're hungry.
0: The books. What, what, are, what are you talking about when you mean the money on the books?
1: Because you can go to commissary. Like, if you eat the stuff they got in there, you're going to be starving. Why? Because one, you get to eat three or four times a day, and you're not allowed to bring food back to your cell. And and the stuff they cook, I'm telling you, man, the first night I was in there, we had these beans that had rocks in it. And then the the guy who was in charge of the kitchen came out and apologized. like, I'm sorry, you know, the the contractor that we contracted with on these beans didn't, whatever, I don't know, you know, I never collected beans or how you, but whatever it was, it it was gravel in the beans, right?
0: It was really rocks in the beans. Yes. You you weren't just saying the beans were hard.
1: No, it was rocks, it was gravel in the beans, right? (laughs) He apologized for it. Um
0: so you're starving cuz
1: the food sucks. Right. So so but you can go to the commissary once a month, but only if you got money on your books.
0: How do you so get money on your books?
1: People have to send it in, right? So people send in the money, then you're allowed like a certain allotment to spend each month. So you, so back then it was $300 a month. <laughs>
0: Sometimes Lawson's family would put money on his books but it was tough. His wife, who went to medical school, got a job at the Waianae Coast Comprehensive Health Center. She was busy working on Oahu's west side and caring for their kids.
1: My wife and kids were here in Hawaii. I'm in West Virginia in prison and I had no visitors for a long time and so uh, one time Out of nowhere, my grand sponsor came to see me and he surprised me. The guard came up to me and said, You got a visitor in the visiting room. So I went to the visiting room. And so uh, my grand sponsor is my sponsor's sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so his name is Joe. And and so I go out there and uh, I tell Joe, I said, You know, he said, How's it going? I said, "One, well, I'm glad you're here." I said, "But you know, man, I said, I'm worried about Marvin and the kids in Hawaii. I'm stuck in prison with these knuckleheads, man. Time is going so slow. It's like the days are like years, right?" He said, "Here's what I want you to do." He said, "I want each morning you wake up, I want you to hit your knees and ask God to put somebody in front of you you can be a service to." And so, he said, "Don't just do it." And so, each morning after that, I hit my knees. I said, "God, please put somebody in front of me today that you want me to be of help to, right?" So normally, if I say to you, "Lynn, how you doing?" and you say, "I'm fine," and you start talking about your husband, your kid, I'm like, "Look, I ain't ask you all that. I ask you, you when I ask you how you are doing. You are supposed to say fine, and I'm supposed to be able to go back and think about my life. You don't understand. You don't know how this game is played. I ain't ask you all that. But what this made me start doing was um, when I would say, "How you doing?" Now I'm listening, because I want to know are you are you the one that I'm supposed to be of help to? And what that did was it kept me in the moment. It got me off of me.
0: Lawson served 10 months in prison before going to a halfway house to finish out his sentence in Honolulu, where he had already made connections with the University of Hawaii Law School by sharing his story.
1: It was TJ Mahoney's halfway house.
0: Yeah, Mahoney.
1: Yeah, and I went down there like, okay, we got good news and bad news. Good news is you're out of prison. Bad news is you're going back, you don't get a job in 30 days. And so, uh, ran the Professor Roth found out that I was out. It's like, hey, you know what? When you were up here last time, the ethics student loved loved your story. Would you want to come back and talk to this year's class? And Brooke Hart was at that class that day. And so I said, but and the halfway house was so crazy because in prison, the guards, you kind of live with them, right? So if you don't bother them, they don't bother you. Right. Just go on about your business. In the halfway house, it was geared to almost try to get you in trouble and get you sent you back. And so they were like busting your room to see if you had a cell phone. Or, like, you know, I just all kind of crazy stuff. And I remember calling my wife from the halfway house, and I said, you know what, I'd I'd rather go spend the rest of my time in prison than to sit down here at T.J. Mahoney's. And I meant that. And so Randy called down there, and you needed a pass to get out the halfway house before you got a job. And he's like, do you want to come talk to this class? I'm like, yeah, you give me a pass to come out this halfway house. I'll come talk to anybody you want me to, man. (laughs) So, So I went up, and I shared my story at that class. Randy gave me a job as a clerk just to to do some stuff for him. But Virginia Hench started the Hawaiian Innocence Project, and she was in the audience. And so she was like, look, you know, I run the Hawaiian Innocence Project. I never practiced law before. I just teach it up here, right? I never did criminal law at all. She said, I heard your story, and you used to practice criminal law. She said, I know this is probably going to be beneath you, right? She said, I got a grant, and I got enough to hire a clerk. It ain't going to be much. And, you know, she said, I don't mean to offend you, but you could really help these students out, Right. I'm sitting there thinking, lady, you, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea I'm about to be sent back to prison if I don't get a job. And my point with that story is that what you all have been telling me was true. If you give, right? Without expecting nothing in return. See, I'm always a giver that's expecting. So if I'm going to give you something, I'm still expecting something, right? I do you a favor, Sooner or later I'm gonna remind you, I did you a favor, now you, you you owe me. And so I had never lived a life to where my job is just to give and not expect nothing in return. With nothing on the endpoint, right? And so that's when I when I said that some of these miracles started coming up and my faith started growing, it's when stuff like that started happening. Now I'm coming to talk to the law students about my story. Next thing you know, I get hooked up into this job that I need so I don't go back to prison. I could have sat there going through one ass all day long and just, no, I can't come talk to you. I got to go find a job first.
0: Sharing his story helped him get his dream job, a job he is thankful
1: for every day. When I got hired at the law school, just being a clerk, then a couple years later, the grant was running out. And I remember, And Jenny, Professor Hensch, God bless her, she, she was so afraid to tell me that we, we can't keep you no more. So she didn't. She just kept trying to find a way to get more money in. And finally what happened was there became an opening for somebody to teach criminal law at the law school. And so I applied, and then I got that job, right? And so I started teaching um, criminal law, and God has a sense of humor. I started teaching ethics, <laughs> right? <laughs> and what happened is that once, so each year the third-year law students get to vote on who they want to get, you know, the, uh, which faculty member they want to give the commencement speech at their graduation. So after my first year of teaching that, they voted for me to do it. And, and Avi was still a Dean at that time. And he introduced me, he was introducing me to the, the, the graduates and their families at the law school for their graduation. And I was about to stand up and speak and it hit me that five years to the day, this was May 18th, 2014, on May 18th, 2009, my sponsor drove me to prison. Uh, now, now how, how does a man go five years to the day? You know, and I told that that I, I said, you know what? Five years ago to this day, my view every day was of a prison compound. That I look out my cell window, and, I could, and 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 that compound is what I swept and picked up trash for for like 13 cent an hour. That was my job for eight hours a day. And now my view from from my office is a diamond here. Now, how does a man go from there to here, from prison in five years to, to, to speaking to a graduating class at an ABA-accredited law school as a faculty member, <laughs> right? That has nothing to do with me. That, I mean, to me, that was just the power uh, of God and, and, and a spiritual program. And so since then, um, I, I've received the, uh, one of the highest awards a, a teaching faculty member can receive from the university, which is a, the Teaching Medal of Excellence, and and uh, I became tenured two years ago. I had to show that example that no matter how bad life can get, you got to keep moving. You know, we fall down, but we rise, you know, and, and get back up. And to me, that's what life is about. And I try to inspire that with my students. and Anybody I come, you know, no matter what we're going through, right, you can rise above it. And, and so, you know, like I said, I can look back on it now and, and, and just see exactly, you know, where God was when I didn't think he was there.
0: Lawson says addiction, rehab, and prison were all necessary to get him back on track. His family's love and support and his spiritual self are what keeps him going, even on days that are a struggle. That's The Other Side of Paradise. Mahalo for listening. I'm Lynn Kawano.